Let's dig in now. If you have a Bible, please open up to Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 35, and then take out those message notes, which you probably already have to make sure you didn't win or you did win. Uh, we're going to study uh, this verse now. This is the verse on the coffee cup at In-N-Out, and it's a really challenging verse. Um, somebody asked, like, well, why are we doing this series? I know it's kind of a whimsical approach to the scriptures, but really there's some power here. If you look at these verses, they're life-changing, with our faith in Jesus and the power of the scriptures operating in our life. Uh, and this includes, of course, the CEO of In-N-Out, Lindsay Snyder. She tells her story and openly credits Jesus with literally saving her life. She's kind of got a, a pretty amazing backstory. Uh, it's out there on the internet. She's, she's a survivor of two attempted kidnappings when she was a kid. Uh, she was, she's been married and divorced a number of times when she was younger. She got married and, and divorced. A lot of pain. Uh, she got addicted to drugs and alcohol, and she credits Jesus with rescuing her and going through recovery, which is why she's so passionate about this type of ministry. And, um, and so there's, 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 this, there's this idea from her that it's not money, it's not fame, it's not position, but it's hope in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus Christ the living God, the Son, the Savior. So, so the belief at in and out is that for some, you'll, you'll, you'll have these passages on the stuff and most people just throw it away, but some, some may look and look these up and, and the seeds can get planted and then the idea is that some will, will look to Christ as their hope too. So that's what we're doing here. Let's look at this verse from Jesus now and we're gonna teach it in its full context, but let's just look at it as it is. So Luke 6.35, Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Love your enemies. Turn to your neighbor and say, love your enemies. Turn to your neighbor and say, do good to your enemies. Are you kidding me, Jesus? How in the world do we do this? It's not just don't hate your enemies, but you love them, and then you're supposed to do good to your enemies? Oh, my goodness. This is such a challenging passage. This is, if this were math class, this is like calculus four. Uh, not because we don't understand it. We do understand it. It's just how do you do it? How do you get through this? And so um, we're going to look at a little bit of this, but let's read it in its full context now. So let me have you move up now, glance upwards in your scriptures to verse 27. You can follow along with me. I think these verses are really powerful in their full context. Here's what Jesus says here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But, our verse, love your enemy, enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful, even as your father is merciful. 
Oh my goodness, it didn't get any easier, did it? Well, there's no outs here. There's not like, oh, well, you know, this is so beautiful, so difficult. And I want to just jump in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So a few uh, basic observations now to set the context for what we just read. I think it'll be helpful as we work through it. The first thing I want to say is that we're not exactly sure, guys, if Luke is giving us excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's five, chapters five through seven, or if Luke is recording here in Luke six a completely different sermon at a different time frame. Most theologians will, if it's option two, they'll refer to this as the Sermon on the Plain. So on your handout, the question is, is Luke 6, what we just read, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain? If it's the Sermon on the Mount in verses five through, uh, chapter 5 through 7 of Matthew, uh, you may be familiar with this. Matthew records Jesus teaching on a hillside right outside of Galilee, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, which is why it's the Sermon on the Mount. And there's multitudes there, thousands. He's preaching and teaching, and he's laying out God's vision for his kingdom. You remember some of these verses, maybe, blessed are the poor, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. It's just, this is by, by far probably the greatest sermon most people regard this as the greatest sermon ever preached. I certainly do. So what we're, we're thinking as option one is, is that Luke is using Sermon on the Mount content, that's your next fill-in, but the emphasis in his orientation here possibly is it's towards Gentiles. The book of Matthew was originally written to Jewish Christians, of course, and so it's very Jewish in its nature. And then the book of Luke, this gospel is actually written, its target audience to Gentile Christians, people without Jewish background. So Luke could be pulling possibly from the Sermon on the Mount and then organizing the material to best land contextually with Gentiles. Or the second theory is, it's a completely different sermon at a different time, a place and occasion. Uh, the commentators point us to Luke 6, 17. So if you just go up a little bit further than we started. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people were there and Jesus begins to heal and preach and minister. So this Greek word level place is the word plain or just flat area, which is where we get the potential sermon on the plain theory here. He's not on a mountain. So then it becomes the Sermon on the Plain is similar content, but a different sermon, meaning Jesus is teaching with a similar thesis, the same thesis, laying out the vision for what following him looks like. But on this day, the Lord emphasized some different things because there's a little bit of some difference between Luke 6 and Matthew 5 through 7. You followed this? You guys with me? Now, I relate to this because every weekend I do three sermons, uh, the 8 o'clock, the, what time is it? 9.15 and the 11. And, um, and I have a script and it's actually word for word <laughs> uh, in theory. And, um, and so, but these three sermons, if you hang around, they're a little different every, every session. Uh, usually my humor is different because a lot of this is stuff I make up on the way and some of it's funny. And actually, most of it's funny. Uh, <laughs> you laughed just now, and that's encouraging. Uh, yeah, but some it's not, so you just kind of move it around a little bit. Um, and so the studies show, the surveys, that my best sermon uh, every Sunday is the 915. So you're coming to the right. So just... I actually said that at the 8 a.m. and 
I'll say that to the 11. So I think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is, he's got this, this, this beautiful message of the kingdom and he's teaching it on multiple occasions and it's, it's contextually a little different and so it's similar, but as the spirit's even moving him, he's, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's including different things slightly. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it humanizes it humanizes Jesus. He is actually 100% man and 100% God without, without diminishing his divinity in any way. So speaking of the thesis, let's talk about this. Uh, that's the next point. The core of what he's bringing, I think, is found here in these passages, okay? You could say that Jesus right here is teaching the heart and soul of Christianity. You're not gonna find anything close to this anywhere else. He's answering some key questions. What does, what does a, a Christ follower look like and how is that different than other religions, faiths, and, and, and philosophies, and moral systems, yeah? This is so, this is like, what sets us apart? And he's laying it out. What does our character look like in real life situations? And he's laying this out comprehensively. We have one little section here, but in, in the fuller uh, sermons, he's talking about sex and marriage and relationships and money and honesty and keeping your word, and it's very holistic. It's very broad-based, and, and it's all-encompassing because he's, again, he's teaching on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's administration on earth amongst his people. This is the rule and the reign of God. What does that look like? What is the governing principles here? What does his administration look like? And here we learn about his values, the Lord's values in his community. And the operative word in that little fill-in is community because I think as Americans, a lot of times we read the Bible as, as very individualistically and there is certainly application for that. And we can read the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain individualistically. But Jesus is giving it as a communal context. It's giving it to his people. He's giving it to his people. This is not just personal morality. This is communal morality. Many Americans and people who live in the West read and, and they're so obsessed. Aren't we just obsessed as a culture with, with just each person having their own like take and their own view and their own you know, personally packaged taking from things in here and here. And well, this is what, this is what, you know, you got to smack your lips. This is what, this is what I believe personally. And, um, and so this is, and, and you're just like, oh my good, that's killing us. That's killing us as a culture. It is. And so this is good for us to look at the community, God's people, and it's not just, well, me, 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 my take, what I think. This is we, 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 and what God thinks and his take. And I think that's very healthy. And then the last observation is, and I have to say this, and that's, you, you really don't want to do the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount unless you have a new heart from Jesus ahead of time. Okay, so don't. Don't try this at home without a regenerated heart from Christ. Many people will read these beautiful verses of ours and they'll approach it more from a secular ethics standpoint. This is um, studied in, in, in uh, public universities and Bible as literature classes and so people approach this and they think about the moral excellence of Jesus. They think about his impressive, uh, his impressive attitude towards others. And, uh, and then some people will then conclude from a secular level, if I, if I can live this way, then God will accept me. 
if I can live this way and, and reach and stretch to these moral standards, then I will experience the Lord's blessing. I will experience grace. I'll experience salvation. But, if, but here's the thing. Here's the punchline. If living this way, the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount, is, if that's how I receive grace, then I am doomed and so are you. We are all doomed. None of us will get grace because none of us can live this way 100% perfect all the time. Even if a person is really disciplined in their moral fiber, you're going you're gonna to fail. You're going to pop out somewhere and just be like, okay, I'm good over here. Like, for example, you could be really good at being humble. You know, your hum- humility is my best feature. I'm really good at uh, humility. <laughs> Look at how humble I am. But then you fail because you hate your enemy. This is an integrated value system, again, impossible to live. So the secret of this section exegetically and practically is that, guys, you got to have Jesus in your heart if you're going to try to do this. A changed heart through the power of the gospel and the sacrifice the blood and the body shed broken for you and the resurrection power of Jesus living inside of you. After you get grace, read the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and then begin to learn from Jesus how to live this out because if you try it by yourself, you are going to be really frustrated and you're gonna give up and you're gonna be like, yeah, I tried Christianity, but it didn't really work. The bar is too high. It's so high, only one person could clear it, Jesus. And so if he's living inside of us, then it's by his power that we can clear it as well. All right, so challenging stuff. Don't try this at home. Leave it to the professional, one and only Jesus. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, calls this the most radical teaching that ever came from the lips of Jesus, what we just read right here. The original hearers of this were shocked by it. You did not love your enemy. You loved your neighbor. Your neighbor was the people of your kind. And so they were like, what? What did you just say? And this was was repulsive. This was impossible. This was a turnoff. It was absolutely stunning. Love your enemies. Love them. Think about that for a minute. Just love your enemies. Love them. Who are your enemies? Well, I don't have any enemies. Yeah, you probably do. I think we all do. There's people that don't like you. There's people that curse you. There's people that talk trash about you when you're not around. I mean, it's, I'm most of us, right? If not all. There's people that will malign us on social media. There's people that are jerks to our kids. Pfft. Oh, you want to see love your enemy? Love the parent who's a jerk to your kid. There's those who are against you at work. Do you have a work nemesis? I don't know. Hopefully not, nobody on my staff does. Um, <laughs> that's why Steve Grace is here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's you show up for work and there's just like somebody there that just doesn't like you. And, you know, maybe they're your level or maybe they're above you. And you're just like, why do you, what's wrong? What did I do? You just showed up, bro. You just showed up. That's it. Or maybe you're slightly annoying, too. I don't know. (laughs) There's people that don't like you because they voted differently than you. 
And there's people you don't like because they voted differently. There's people that mistreat you. There's that crazy back fence neighbor that plays their music at, you know, 11.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm sorry, 11.30 at night on Saturday and then 7 a.m. on Sunday morning, right? If you don't have a crazy back fence neighbor, just move around enough and you'll get one, you know, or to the side. There's those who mistreat you, those that strike you on the cheek. It's, it's, it's so hard to love your enemies. It's easy, Jesus says, to love those who love you. It's easy to, 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 to lend to those who are going to just pay you back right away and you don't have to ask them a hundred times, can I have my hammer back, bro? Uh, it's easy to love those who think you're great. It's easy to love your fans. It's easier to love your friends. I mean, it's not easy. Some friends are hard to love, but we love them. And so Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them. Do good. What? Do good? I can't just not hate you. I have to do good to you? What does that even mean? Pray for them? Have you ever tried to pray for someone that you really don't like? It's so hard. Isn't it hard? You just, ah, Lord, no. <laughs> Let's just get real. It's hard. Bless them. Jesus says, give to those who ask. From those that take from you, don't demand it back. Now, I want to I clarify something and look at what this doesn't mean because this verse has been wildly misinterpreted. Um, abusers who know the Bible will use this against Christians as a way to continue abusing a person. And so I just want to be clear. There's no fill-ins. Let's just make sure we get this right. This passage doesn't mean that God wants Christians to be in abusive situations that do damage to our bodies, minds, and souls. All right? There's no passage in Scripture that justifies this type of behavior. God does not support or applaud this. Turn the other cheek, for example, does not mean to stay in a marriage where there's physical violence happening, domestic violence happening. So this includes physical, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, these types of things. If you're in a relationship, if you're, a, a, if you're, if you're sort of wired to be an enabler and some people come into your life and they abuse you and they're narcissists and they're ruining and wrecking your life, this is not the scripture that says, well, turn the other cheek. That's not what this means. It means, it means other things, but... If you're in a situation like that, there's hope and healing for you, but get out of that relationship. If you can't get out or you don't see a way out, then reach out for help. The church is here to help. The church is here. Let us know. Alert us through any form of communication, and we, we, will, we will bring the resources of our church and other resources to help you navigate this. Okay. From there, that's pretty intense, less intense, it doesn't mean that if someone is stealing from you that you have to let them keep stealing from you. It doesn't mean if someone is harassing you then you need to let them keep harassing you. If someone is, is taking advantage of you, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to draw a healthy boundary. Drawing healthy boundaries is good. It's godly. It's biblical. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to walk away. It's okay to not get drawn into some drama. Save your drama for your mama. <laughs> it's okay to not answer the door when a crazy person who ain't good for you comes a knocking. Mm, somebody could say an amen or something. Remember last week we talked about the amens? You could, or you could just give me a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just give me a, mm -hmm. there you go. Jesus doesn't want any of us to be victimized. He doesn't want our humanity diminished. The imago Dei, the image of God is in us. He does not want us to be traumatized. Rather, Jesus came to heal our brokenness, not put us in situations where we have continual brokenness happen to us. You know, it's really interesting. If you go a little further up in Luke, in Luke 4, Jesus is teaching at his home synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. This is a place that actually we have the archaeology. We can go there, you can go to Nazareth, and you can go to this synagogue that Jesus grew up in. He grew up here when he, was, he got back from Egypt. His family was raising him, and, uh, and he's crawling around on the floor. You can sit on the floor that Jesus sat on when he was a, a wee lad. Ah, it's a beautiful thing. There's also a McDonald's near there, too. I don't know why. It's just like, oh, my goodness. Such a... I went to the McDonald's there. I don't know why I did that. That's not part of the sermon or my notes. Um, I'll filter that out next service because you didn't... It didn't work. But he's, he's teaching now as a, as a man. He's in his public ministry. And, he, and he, he, he takes the scroll, the Torah, and he unrolls it. And he reads from the book of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he read this aloud, and then he rolls the scroll back up, and he sits down in typical Jewish synagogue format. And then he says out loud, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm here to heal brokenness, to set the captives free, to unbind, to proclaim the gospel, I'm here to make this happen. This is the gospel, so we cannot conclude erroneously from Luke 6, a few chapters later, that the Lord is putting us back into brokenness, producing scenarios. It's just, it's nonsensical and contradictory to what he came to do. So that's what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean? I'll just give you the, the answer, then we'll unpack it. This, this does mean that we're not to retaliate evil for evil. That's what we're getting here from these verses. If someone comes at you, the natural, the natural person, when someone comes at you, is you, you go back. You just you go back at them in, in, in various forms and fashions. And Jesus is saying you don't come back. If someone talks trash, someone's talking a mouthful of trash about you at work. Oh, don't talk trash back. Don't. Don't get drawn in to the garbage. If someone bashes you on social media, don't get on there and, you know, go at them on your page or their thread. That's no good. The name of Jesus is sullied by that type of behavior. If someone is rude to you, don't be rude back. If someone treats you spitefully, let it end there. Jesus says here, guys, my kids, don't engage in counterattacks, comebacks, get evens, get backs, full stop on that. My followers, don't return evil for evil, wickedness for wickedness. Ugly may happen to you, it will happen to you, but we're not to give ugly back. And so what happens is, um, someone treats you poorly or is rude or mistreats you or abuses you. Let's say, uh, let me give you an example. Your boss just really treats you bad. He, he steals, he, one day he takes all the credit for your work and gives no recognition, and he steals your ideas, your efforts, and your work, and then he passes them off as his own, and he leaves you, 
he leaves you completely without any rightful recognition. Has this ever happened? And so you're, you're like, wow, you just really got disrespected. You got punched. And you got this ball of frustration at work. And many of us at work, because there's a power differential, we won't, we won't say anything to our boss. You just kind of take it. But there's like this, this explosion that's happened inside in here. Yeah? And you're just trying to contain it. And so you're walking around that day. And then you get home. And then what happens to many of us is that explosion comes out on family, on wife, spouse, husband, kids, dog. Better on the cat, though. Uh, <laughs> but not on the cat. And then what happens is the people that we explode on, then they get hurt. And now they have their own little mini explosion. And so what happens to them? They just pass it on to whoever comes in their life. And so it just goes on and on and on, right? It rolls on round and round and round. And who wins? Nobody. Satan wins. Hurt people hurt people. And this is not what Jesus is advocating either. In other words, it's not just retaliating to the person who, who offends or steals or takes, but it's, uh, I don't do anything. And then it's, we can't do that either on the side. That's, that's the teaching. And so the question is, what do you do when you have this triggering explosion? It will happen. What do you do with it? Where do you go with it? It's there. And you're just like doing this. It's got to go somewhere, does it not? Be angry and don't sin, the Bible says. What do you, how do you even do that? I don't know. I mean, I just know from personal experience, for me, I'll just tell you what it's like for me. Someone comes at me or my family, which happens in this job. And it's like there's a, a professional boxer in my chest just pounding, wanting to get out. I can feel it. And some days, like on my day off, I'll just sit. Not often, but it happens in this job, in this career, this calling. And I'll just sit at home and I'll just feel it. The, I'll just feel the, they want out. He wants out. He wants me to fight back. He wants me to slap back. And I can just feel it. Anybody with me on this? You know what I'm talking about? So there's just days where I have to just pull away and I just have to let Jesus basically put that thing to sleep through the power of his grace. It's hard, guys. But I can't, I can't take it out on someone else. I can't get drawn in to the mud, the pig styes, the junk. It's not going to help. It may feel good in a moment, but it's not going to help. And it's certainly not going to live out what we're seeing here. Jesus is advocating an opposite way of life. No more knee-jerk responses. You've got the supernatural love of Jesus living in your heart. So he, he, look, he, he actually gives two examples, striking on the cheek and taking in the tunic. Let me just unpack that a little bit because there's some interesting context. So strike on the cheek... Remember this, uh, verse 29, offer the other also. 
So what that means is, it literally means a slap. So a slap, when you get struck on the cheek, for Jewish people, it was, it was the ultimate insult. To be publicly slapped was to be humiliated. That wasn't just to inflict pain, it was a shaming mechanism. In the Jewish Mishnah, which are ancient extra-biblical sources written by rabbis as commentary on, on the law, it details out a financial penalty for slapping someone publicly in order to compensate them for their shame and humility. In other sources, there are accounts of Jews being excommunicated from their synagogue in a ceremony where they would uh, be brought up in front of the synagogue and, and their rabbi would slap them across the face and reject them from the community. When Jesus is standing trial before Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, the day before he is, he is put on the cross, he is repeatedly slapped in the face, the son of God. He was being insulted and excommunicated. Jesus is saying here, when you're insulted, don't retaliate with insults back. And then there's the taking away of the cloak. And this means persecution. The Romans were good at persecuting those that didn't play along. And of course, the, the Christians didn't attend all the, the temples and gods and goddesses. And so they were marked by the soldiers. And at any time, the Christians in the first, second century, um, oftentimes could be just harassed by soldiers and they would steal their cloaks. What does that mean? Their cloaks were like, for us, we have a lot, well, most of us have a lot of jackets. Uh, I wore, we all wore jackets today. I was really chilly. I'm actually wearing long johns. I'm so hot. I'm so cold right now. I'm so hot. <laughs> I mean, I'm so cold. I came out wrong. We have jackets, yeah, and in Oregon, you need a lot of jackets, you know, theoretically, if you can have them, because on, like, in, in the shoulder seasons, it'll be really cold in the morning, and then it'll sort of, you know, heat up, and then it'll rain, and, and it's all in, like, you know, eight hours. You're just like, wow, uh, you know, and so you have to have this, but back then, they didn't have a lot of jackets. They had a cloak, and most people, and they had one, and underneath it was a, an undergarment, a tunic, and the cloak was not only your... Your, your jacket during the day, but oftentimes it was your blanket at night. And so the Roman soldiers would take the cloaks of the Christians knowing they would freeze at night. It's a form of torture and persecution. And so Jesus, of course, experienced this. When he was crucified, the Roman soldiers stripped him of his cloak and his tunic, his undergarment, and then they gambled to see who would get them. And there's a site in Jerusalem where the soldiers carved into the stone floor the game, the dice game that they play to see who gets the cloaks of those being crucified. And we think Jesus was beat and whipped right there. And that's a place we can go to as well. So Jesus is saying, when you're persecuted for your faith, he's commanding us to love those people, to not retaliate. And when people insult you and belittle you and reject you, to not retaliate, to somehow, by God's grace, end the hurt cycle. Do good instead. This is a radical way of living. This is radical faith. 
Jesus is teaching us something beautiful. He's saying, your last fill-ins, when you live this way, you are treating others the same way your Father in heaven treats you. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to those who are his enemies. And the gospel teaches us, my friends, even though it may not feel like it, but apart from God, we're God's enemies because of our sinfulness. Romans 5.10, another passage in the New Testament talks about this. Even though we are his enemies, that verse says he loved us. Even though we were altogether unlovely, he loved us. Even though we were ungrateful to him, he is merciful to us. When we insulted God, when we took his name in vain, he never returned evil for evil. His patience and his love was poured out upon us, giving us multiple chances. So when we live this way, this radical passage, all we're doing is simply taking our cues and clues from our Father in heaven. This is the gospel. Once again, our passage takes us into deep waters. I'd like us to end today with just a word of prayer. Lord, if there was ever a moment where we needed your help to understand and apply a difficult passage, then it's this morning, it's today. And so we ask you for your help, your supernatural resources, for your spirit, for the power of a regenerated heart, that we may, we may have the grace to live against what our own bodies and minds want to do when we're insulted and slapped and persecuted and belittled and rejected. This is a broken world. None of us escapes this. It can be as innocuous as just someone cut us off on the freeway and there's a mini explosion. It can be a deep wound by a father or a mother. It can be so many ways in which the enemy will seek to divide us. I'm praying, Lord, for those who right now the spirit is bringing up an enemy in their minds. I'm praying, Lord, that you would give them the grace to love their enemy. Lord, I'm asking you, Lord, for a deeper understanding of the gospel and how you absorb the slaps, you absorb the persecution, you absorb the rejection so that you might bring us to you by faith in, in, your, in your gospel. So help us now to embrace Jesus, embrace the way that he wants us to live. Help us, Lord, be merciful even as you are merciful. And we pray this now in your strong name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.